guys can have a seat. And you can open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Uh, last fall, we did an inventory of our values. We asked um, uh, our members, our official members, and anybody else who wanted to be part of it to fill out an inventory of how they were embracing and living out the values of our church. Um, and uh, I've shared different results at different times. January, we shared a lot of them. Um, but one of the final questions on this thing was this. It said this. It said, I wish more people in our church would be as passionate as I am about. And then it was blank. Fill in the blank. You put whatever is on your heart. And, and I, I, I took all the data that came in, and these are the categories in order of highest marks. Uh, justice and mercy category uh, got 11, and there's all kinds of things. Justice for the unborn, serving the community, somebody put compassion for all, local missions, racial justice, justice for immigrants, generosity for those in need. So I put all those in the justice and mercy category. Next up was knowing and surrendering fully to Jesus. Right? Knowing our calling, personal holiness, Holy Spirit empowerment. And, and, and this wasn't people saying uh, that, we, like, I'll, I'll, I'll explain at the end. Hold on. Let me keep going. Supernatural healing, physical and emotional. Nine people put that one. Community and unity, six people. Prayer got five. Marriage got five. End times got four. Word of God got three. Children got two. So this, what it doesn't mean is that there's only two people in the church that care about kids. That's not what it means. It means that I wish more people were as passionate as I am about. So it could mean that most people feel like, ah, we're all passionate about kids. Uh, But two people felt like we're not as passionate enough about kids. Evangelism, too. So that was just one of those questions, right? Kind of took all that and was praying about it. Was praying about, you know, what what might this look like for our church this year? In particular, as it regards to sermons and preaching and series we're going to cover. And and one of the things that I've been led to do uh, is the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew covers so many of those topics. So many of those topics, so many of the questions that we've got come in from people uh, is concluded in the book of Matthew. So tonight we're starting a, a long series uh, called As Told by a Scoundrels. Encounters with Jesus in the book of Matthew. It's going to be uh, a series looking at the encounters that Jesus had with people in this book. So we're not looking at every single scenario or scene in the book of Matthew. We're not going to cover the birth narrative, for example. We're going to look at where Jesus had encounters with people, his teaching, his miracles, his confrontations with the authority around him. And we're going to study that. And furthermore, we are going to uh, do it so that it doesn't feel like a never-ending series like Exodus felt like. We're going to do it in mini-series. We're going to cover themes at a time, a few weeks at a time. So the first theme we're going to cover is identity. Who we are because of who Jesus is, if we belong to Jesus. Who we are because of who Jesus is, if we belong to him. Because on our own, naturally speaking, on our own, without Jesus, we are, we're orphans. We're orphans looking out for ourselves, needing to look out for ourselves, having to look out for number one, having to protect ourselves, having to find security for ourselves on our own. On our own, we uh, are always trying to make up for, for past mistakes, doing good, wondering, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? On our own, we often feel the need to earn God's favor and prove our worth to him. On our own, we look to find value in the approval of people around us. On our own, we're constantly worried about making the wrong decisions, lest other people or God 
be angry with us. On our own, we are often feeling good about ourselves only in comparison to the next person who's not doing as good. I'm a good person compared to my neighbor, right? We play those religious games. On our own, we are fearful about the future, trying to control our circumstances or the people around us. On our own, we are somewhat able to manage our behaviors, but unable to deal with the deeper issues of our heart. Anger, lust, envy, worry. But if we are in Christ, if we belong to him, through faith in him, then we become who he is in his humanity. What he reveals to us in his humanity, we get to be in, in that. Because of his life, his death, his resurrection, when we trust in that resurrection, we become part of this resurrection life. And in this beginning of the book of Matthew, as we look at this, this, the genealogy today, this intro week, and then we're going to look at uh, the beginning of his ministry, we see, oh, that's who, what I get if I'm in him. That's going to be four weeks on identity. So let's just pray, and then we're going to jump into it, Okay. Jesus, I believe that you're alive. We believe that you are alive. You rose from the dead. You conquered the grave. You conquered sin. You conquered death so that you can invite each of us into your resurrection life by grace and grace alone. I pray that those of us who belong to you, we have a greater understanding of we feel it in our souls, what it means to belong to you, what it means to be in you, our identity in you. And, and those who maybe never trusted in you, God, I pray that you, you draw them in tonight, that they see how much you love them, that they see the offer of resurrection life that you offer everyone. I pray in your name. Amen. Okay, so for this beginning, this beginning week, it's a bit of a, like I said, it's an, it's, it's an intro week. So we're actually not looking at an encounter that Jesus had with somebody for this week alone. Um, what we're going to talk about is the author of the book of Matthew, and then we're going to look at the opening genealogy. So who wrote the book of Matthew? Why is it called, told by, told by a scoundrel? Well, it's because Matthew who most scholars and the early church fathers believed wrote the book of Matthew, he was a bit of a scoundrel. He was one of Jesus' closest 12 disciples or apostles. He was also uh, known as Levi. But he was a scoundrel when Jesus first called him to follow him. He, he, he was uh, known as a shrewd businessman, a little bit selfish, a lover of money. Because he was a tax collector. And tax collectors did not have a very good reputation in the first century. You, you, you see, the Jewish people were being oppressed by the Romans. And for the Romans to rule over them, over this vast empire, they needed an army. And to have this army, they needed to fund that army. And to fund that army, they needed to collect taxes from their subjects. So they're like, hey, Jewish people, we need your money to fund the army that's oppressing you. And we need tax collectors to collect those taxes. So Matthew, being a Jew, said, hey, I'll help you guys. And I'll skim a little bit off the top. I'll skim a little bit of the put in my pocket. So basically, what tax collectors were known to do is say, hey, you owe the government $100, but I'm going to tell you that it's $120, and I'm going to take that $20 and pocket it. And so Matthew was seen as a traitor to his own people. He was seen as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, a 
In fact, the religious leaders had a class of sinners called the tax collectors and sinners. They were a low class of sinners. Kind of like what we would say about people like, everybody's imperfect, but that guy is a dirtbag. Drug addicts and blank, 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 and dirtbags. Like, that's what tax collectors were known as. They were in that kind of category of sinners, especially to the Jews. They saw them as traitors. And yet Jesus called this guy to follow him, and this guy goes on to write an account of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and it begins the New Testament. This guy's story, this guy's account of who Jesus is. He is used by God to write the first gospel account in our New Testament. And so Matthew knows what it means to have one identity based on what he's done, and based on how people have seen him, and based on the mistakes he's made, and to then be brought into a whole new identity because of Jesus' grace. He understood that. And then, I think that affected how he wrote the genealogy that he opened his book with. So let's talk about this genealogy. Usually, these are the boring parts of the Bible, right? If you've read the Bible and you come to the genealogies, you're like, uh, can I skip this one? Anyway, right? You ever do that? There is a reason that they were in there. There's a reason that they were put in there. Uh, first of all, it helped to, uh, you know, they wanted, like, they would want me to know where I came from. What tribe am I a part of? And some cultures still do this today. They memorize their family line. They memorize that so they know where, what tribe I came from, what's my family line. Um, and so it's typical to start off uh, a, a, a story about someone showing where they came from, especially someone that you believe to be the Messiah for the Jews. Matthew wanted to show, Matthew was writing primarily to a Jewish, Jewish audience, to Jewish readers, to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah and to show the line that he came from. But Matthew's genealogy was a little bit different than Luke's, and he emphasizes different things. So let me just show you this genealogy a little bit. So it starts off by saying this, and if you have your Bibles, just going to camp out in verses 1 to 17 of chapter 1. It starts off by saying, the book of the genealogy is Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it begins generation after generation. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and it continues, and it continues. I'm not going to read them all. Just look at the screen. Look how many generations it's covering. Look at that. Solomon, Hezekiah, covers a lot, tracks it all the way down. Look at verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now, there's some special things, as I said, about this, 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 this genealogy that, that I think tells us a little bit about who Jesus is and what we are invited into when we trust in him and the new identity we get. So let's just back up to verse 1. I'm going to point these out. You can take notes if you want. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Genealogy comes from the same word that we get Genesis, beginning, right? The book of Genesis, the beginning. It's in our Bibles. It's the first book of the Old Testament. So what's Matthew saying? This is the book of the beginning. Jesus Christ. He's telling a story of creation. The, the first book of the New Testament is 
telling a story of creation. Just like Genesis told the story of creation, Matthew is telling the story of a new creation through Jesus Christ. He's telling the story of a new creation that's being inaugurated through Jesus Christ. Something special is going on here, Matthew is saying. You know the story, he's saying to his Jewish readers, you know the story of Genesis. I'm telling you the story of a new beginning offered in Jesus Christ. Jesus was uh, Yeshua. It was his common name in that time. His human name. Human name. He's human. Christ. Also Messiah. Anointed one. It was, it, was a, it was a title of royalty. He was a royal title. Matthew's saying he was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the promised one from the line of David. The son of David. They knew, the Jewish audience knew, that there was a promised king come through the line of King David. King David was going to have babies and babies and babies. But someday, one of those babies was going to grow up and be a ruler that was going to usher in God's kingdom. And Matthew's making the point, Jesus came from the line of David. In fact, kingdom and kingship is one of the biggest themes for Matthew. We're going to see that over the course of this series. More so than Luke, more so than John, more so than Mark, Matthew emphasizes his, his kingship, his, his royalty. We, we see, we're going to see his authority as king, his authority over sickness and disease and demons and sin, and how that authority threatens the authority of the earthly rulers around him. And so there's Collisions and confrontations, conflict that happen as a result of his kingship. And then he says, son of Abraham. They knew that God had made a promise to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. God had said that through you there's going to be a nation. And through that nation, all nations are going to get to be blessed. And Matthew saying, Jesus, the Christ, is how all nations throughout the whole world get to be blessed by the Jewish people. Because they've produced Jesus to Christ through the line of Abraham, the promised seed of Abraham. And then, verse 2, we start to look at the generations, as I showed you. What I want to show you right now, the next thing I want you to notice is four women who are mentioned in this genealogy. Typically, in the first century, uh, in, in that time, the, the, the genealogies did not include women. Sorry, ladies. They just weren't included. It was mostly men. Um, but Matthew chooses to include four women in this genealogy, and I want to show you a few reasons why. So look at verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. He chose to include the mother in there. By Tamar. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That was the first woman we're going to Come back to why that is. And Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadab. And Abinadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Oh, there's another, there's another mother included there. Why is Rahab included? We're going to come back to that. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. That's the third woman. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, oh snap, by the wife of Uriah. Now she's got a name, it's Bathsheba. Matthew chooses to describe her as the wife of Uriah. We'll find out why. He chooses to call her that. What do they all have in common? These four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, also known as Bathsheba. What do they all have in common? Other than being women, other than being female. 
some would say that they were all um, uh, guilty of some kind of some shady stuff in their past. And that would be true because it's true of all of us. We're all guilty of some shady stuff. Anybody guilty of some shady stuff? Yeah? Dave, especially Dave, right? Not so much Jen. Records, let the record show. Jen did not raise her hand. Only Dave left her husband hanging. <laughs> but I, I used to think that's why these women were included, because they had some shady past. Uh, past. But, but, but I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that anymore, because you, you, you didn't have to include the women. Matthew didn't have to include the women to show that God includes people with shady pasts. The guys have some shady pasts. Abraham was a liar who pawned his wife off as his sister so that he wouldn't get guilty. He's like, oh, she's my sister. You can, you can mess around with her. She ain't my wife. David takes another man's wife and then has the dude killed when she gets pregnant. Judah, we'll talk about Judah in a minute. I mean, these, there are some despicable guys in this line. So you didn't have to include the women to showcase that God includes people who are guilty of some shady stuff. In fact, the, the naming of these women, what it actually does is highlight the, 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 the despicableness of some of these men. Because some of these men used and abused these women in this list here. Tamar, for example says that she was, Judah was the father of Perez by Tamar. Judah was Tamar's father-in-law. Tamar was married to one of Judah's kids. He kind of used her. The guy was a wicked dude. He died. And then his brother came along. He married her. He kind of used her. I don't want to get too, I did a message on that particular story for Mother's Day a few years ago. It was the most inappropriate Mother's Day message ever. But I think it blessed some, some mothers who had some dysfunctional families. I really do. It was, it was called God's Grace Over Our Dysfunctional Families. It was a very graphic story. Um, you, can, you can listen to it online or just read it in your Bible. Um, but what ended up happening was Tamar was left without a husband, without any kids to care for her. And that, that's, that's, that's a bad place to be for a woman in that time. Judah did not want to give her to one, his, his last son. And so what she ended up doing was dressing up like a prostitute. And she seduced Judah, got him to sleep with her. She got pregnant. He didn't know that he had just slept with his daughter-in-law. So later on when he found out his daughter-in-law was pregnant, he was approving of her about to be stoned. And then she provided some of his belongings. He was like, well, here, the guy who is the father of this baby, these things belong to that guy. And Judah was like, oh, shoot, that's me. Oh, shoot, she's more righteous than I am, he said. And so she didn't get stoned. She had this baby and that baby, that's the baby that God chose to use to continue this plan of redemption, of redeeming all nations. He chooses to use this girl. And what happened with her and her father-in-law? So naming her highlights Judah's sin, uh, probably more so than her. And then, and then Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. She came out of a, the, the city of Jericho. Jericho was the first city that the people of Israel, after they came out of Egypt, they were going against Jericho to take the promised land. And Joshua sent two spies in. They came in and Rahab said, hey, I'll hide you. I'll protect you. But you got to do one thing for me. When your people come and attack us, you protect my family. And so they did. She had a healthy fear of God, of the Israel's God. And so her and her family got included in Israel. And guess who God used? Out of all the people in Israel, God chose Rahab to continue his plan of redemption. Now, being a prostitute, not a good thing. But in that time, in that time, you, 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 you didn't 
this wasn't chosen for you. Like, she, she wasn't like, oh, you know, I want to grow up to be. Like, she, she was probably either widowed, divorced, and left without security. And so a woman with a back, her back to the wall, she didn't have much of a choice. So again, somebody who's been used, who had been abused. Ruth did not have a similar scandal in her past. But she was a Moabite. Moabites were known to be children of incest. So she did have some stigma to her. She did have some stigma to her. She did have some reason to feel shame. And yet God chose to use her. And then there's the wife of Uriah, Bathsheba. But that story is King David. King David, who God said was a man after his own heart. King David one day, while his people were out fighting, his men were off fighting, he was supposed to be off fighting with them. He's not. He stayed back. He was being lazy. He saw this woman bathing on her rooftop. And he's like, uh... Get me that girl. Get her over here. He slept with her. She gets pregnant. And then before people found out, he was like, I got I to gotta make it look like the husband did it. He couldn't get the husband to, uh, I won't go into too much detail, but basically David had the guy killed. He had the guy put on the front lines uh, so that he would be killed. And so nobody would know that David who, who got her pregnant. And then again, God chose to use this dysfunctional relationship to continue his plan of redemption. Crazy. Crazy. So Matthew chose to include these women, I don't think just to say, hey, God uses sinners, although that's, that's highlighted in his genealogy, but these women battled shame. These women battled shame. They had been used. They had been abused. And so I think Matthew was also saying, hey, God, God uses those who have reasons to have stigma on them, who have been also used and abused by others. They, they are a kind of a, a forerunner to a fifth woman who's mentioned in this genealogy. Anybody want to guess who the fifth woman is? Mary. Yeah. At the, at the, so all four women had reason to battle shame. But look at the end. Verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So if you know the story, Mary has this immaculate conception, we call it, right? This supernatural, the Holy Spirit puts a baby in her while she's engaged to Joseph. Joseph doesn't believe, like none of us would believe, that the Holy Spirit put a baby in her. He's like, okay, so he's about to divorce her, end this engagement period. An uh, angel shows up to Joseph. This is the Christmas story. It says, Joseph, no, this is from the Holy Spirit. So he takes her as his wife. But people still know about this. There will still be a stigma to it. And so... Anybody who's been through trauma or abuse knows that even if you're not guilty of something, you can still feel shame. Even if you didn't do something wrong, you can still feel like you are wrong, that you are broken. And I wonder, and I wonder if Matthew, and I wonder if Mary thought about those other four women in that genealogy and thought of her history, her ancestors, and thought, well, wait a second, wait a second. If God can redeem Tamar, and God can redeem Bathsheba, and if God can redeem Rahab, then it doesn't matter what people think of me. It doesn't matter how people look at me. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust what God is doing here. I'm not going to be driven by the way other people might be seeing me. I'm going to trust that God is at work here. He's got a plan here. So all four women battle shame. I think they were paving the way for Mary. But another reason that I think they were included by Matthew is that they were all foreigners. I thought I had a slide for that. They were all foreigners. 
Actually, yeah, we do. Here we go. Where is it? There it is. Sorry. Got mixed up with my slides. Uh, Tamar was a Canaanite. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba was a Hittite. None of them were born into the Jewish family. And they're all included. They're all included. So why did Matthew include them? Well, I think Matthew was showing his Jewish people. He's reminding them that God had a plan and God had a promise from the beginning to include all nations, to include all ethnos, to include every people group. And Matthew needed to show that by foreigners entering the family. But he's also trying to show that Jesus is the promised king from the line of David. And to show that, he had to show that through the male line, that, 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 that they're all Jewish. So he's showing this Jewish line, Jesus is Jewish, pure, coming through from the line of David, but some of the women who entered the family line were from non-Jewish or Gentile backgrounds. And what's Matthew's point? What's Matthew's point? That God is including those who are not naturally included. God is after the outsiders. God is going after those who don't belong, and he's making them belong through his grace. He's including people who don't belong. In other words, the genealogy shows that God's mercy is deep, and it covers all kinds of sins like murder and adultery, but it's also wide, and it includes every nation, every background, every religious background, every racial and ethnic background it includes. Praise God indeed. Here's my main point. Once broken people, guilty, ashamed outsiders, are now trophies of God's glorious grace. That's what this gene genealogy shows. Broken people, some of them guilty, some of them had reason to feel ashamed because of what's been afflicted on them. Some of them outsiders, didn't belong, but all of them, all of them are brought into this family line to continue God's plan of redemption. And I think Matthew is thinking about all these things because he's thinking about his own background as a tax collector. He's thinking about how people see him, look at him, and the, the, the mistakes, the sins, the things that he did. And he's saying, man, wow, that's right. That's right. God redeemed that situation with Tamar and Judah. That's right. God redeemed Rahab. That's right. And God's redeeming me. That's right. I am a trophy of God's grace. And that's offered to you and I too. That's our identity. We're trophies of grace. We don't have to worry about God looking at us and determining who we are based on what we've done. Because some of us would be like, man, I don't know if I'd be included for that. But it also challenges those who think they should be included because of what they've done, because they think they've got it all together. And that's what we're going to see. Jesus goes up against that a lot. That's who actually ends up excluding themselves. I'm a trophy of my own good works. I'm a trophy of my own good behavior. I'm a trophy of me picking myself up by my bootstraps. And Jesus challenges that too. And there's a little bit of both in all of us. Right? Sometimes we feel shame. And then sometimes we feel like, oh, I got myself together this week. I'm doing good. No, no. Trophies of grace. Oh, there, 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 are, there are times... Tell me if I'm wrong. There are times when you 
feel like, man, I am guilty of some things and I should not be, don't deserve to be included in God's family. And those moments should remind us that, oh, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. That's right. This is an opportunity to thank God that I'm a trophy of his grace. We get to be, to the world, pictures of what God's grace looks like. Wow, God saved Frank? You know Frank's background? God saved him? Wow. Praise, not Frank, praise God. Praise God for what he's done in Frank's life. I have, mo- I have days where I wake up. I don't know about you. I have days where I wake up and I go, what did I do? Like, I think about things from years ago. And I'm like, oh my gosh, why did I do that? Like there's some stuff in my past that I could look back and I'm like, ah, oh, that was silly and stupid and I was a fool. But I could laugh at And there's other things where I'm like, I get a stomachache. Like, oh, I wish I could take that back. I wish I could go apologize to that person. I can't make up for it. And all, I get, all I'm left to do is, God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace. And then like maybe the, the women, maybe, you know, some of us, we, maybe there's things that have happened to us that make us feel shame. It's not because of something we did that we're guilty of, but it's something that's been done to us. Like I mentioned earlier, maybe abuse, some kind of trauma, something you just feel like, man, you know, maybe, maybe it's because of... Gosh, you feel overweight, you feel underweight, you're, you're getting older and you're still single. Whatever makes you think people look at you as you're less than, you might be tempted to feel shame. And the good news is, that's an opportunity to go, oh, that's right, that's right. I'm not living for the approval of people. I don't need people to sign off. This is an opportunity for me to remember God includes the outsiders, he includes the shamed he includes the people who, man, I, I, I feel that just on a small level. I'm not educated. I mean, if you guys know that, I might thin out our church tonight. But I, I went to college. I dropped out of college, pursued filmmaking. Later on, ended up in ministry through the back door. Uh, as I was getting ordained, they were like, yo, you got to go to Bible college. And I went there. Um, but I only I took a few years enough to finish the ordination process. I didn't go to seminary, in other words. So I'm sometimes in circles, right, where people who are much more educated than me. I'm like, I don't know if I belong here. Sometimes people show up at True Life and they're all educated. So where'd you go to seminary? I'm like, well, so I try to change the subject. Where are you from? Where'd you go to seminary? Because you know? <laughs> I feel a little bit shame. I feel like I'm on the outside. I, like, I don't even belong in Jesus' family, much less be a pastor. And so I feel that. And I have to remember, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Okay, I'm a trophy of God's grace. I'm not meant to make people go, oh, wow, I'm impressed with Chris. The goal is, wow, if God can use him, and the people who know me the best go, wow, I can't believe God can use him, but I guess he can, then praise God, right? So all those moments of weaknesses and shame and guilt that we feel on a given day, feel like outsiders, feel like outsider at a school, it's an opportunity to remember, wow, the kid that got bullied at school is, can be used by God in powerful ways. All those moments are moments to remember that God turns broken people into trophies of grace. So I'm going to call a band up. Come on up, band. And I'm going to ask if you have your communion elements and you're going to receive it with us tonight. If you're a follower of Jesus, uh, you're invited to. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, um, uh, don't feel any pressure to, to, to do this with us. We don't want you jumping through religious 
things without, you know, your heart being in it. Don't, don't feel pressure to do that. But if you have the communion elements, you can take them out. If uh, you don't have one, if you didn't get one, somehow you, the ushers missed you, uh, put your hand up and the ushers will put it in your hand. Just keep it, keep it, keep it up until they, until they hook you up with it. And you guys can stand with me. So you can, um, you can take out the cracker, peel that top off and take the cracker. Uh, the, the cracker represents Jesus' body. And, and the juice represents his blood that was spilled. I should think about this. Think about this. Think about this. God became a man. The God who's been eternal, always there became a baby, was born into a human line, a very dysfunctional human line, so that he could put on flesh, so that he could live a perfect, obedient life in our place, a life that we cannot live. And so that that flesh could be crucified on a Roman cross, that body, nailed, stabbed, and whipped, and scorched, and his blood spilled on the streets of Jerusalem and on the hill of Golgotha. And then he rose again, proving that he is indeed who he said he was. Not just the Messiah promised through the line of David, but the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And he invites all of us to grab a hold of his coattails, to place our trust in him. And when we do, we become, he becomes in us, his spirit in us, and we are in him. Our identity is wrapped up in him. And tonight we remember that we have become trophies of His grace. Who we are is not based on what we've done. It's not based on our failures or our accomplishments. It's not based on whether people like us or approve of us in any given moment. Jesus has adopted us into His family and there's nothing that's going to kick us out. We are not We don't find our worth based on our innocence versus our guilt. We are we are guilty. But because Jesus lived an innocent life and then paid for our guilt, we get to be clothed with his righteousness. We get his straight A report card. We get to be covered by his robe. Of, of purity, even though we have reason to feel shame. So that's what we remember when we receive this together. Let's receive the cracker. And let's take the cup that Jesus took the night he was betrayed. He said, when you take this, do this in remembrance of me. So let's drink this cup.
our shame is washed away and our reason for boasting has been taken away and we're left with a ton of reasons to praise his name forever let's let's sing together <laughs>